Welcome to the Infinite Women Podcast. I'm your host, Allison Tyra, and I am joined today by a phenomenal young opera singer named Jess Harper. Jess is going to talk to us today about the Australian opera singer Nellie Melba. And so first, Jess, um, in addition to just your fabulous self, mm-hmm. um, I know you have a couple of connections to Nellie, if you want to tell us about that. Yes, I was really thrilled that you asked me to do this because I've Dame Nellie's kind of come into my life. She's circled back a few times. Um, and it's it's really cool that I now get to sort of talk about her. I'm I'm no expert at all, but I'm certainly a fan. So in year twelve I had to write a um a piece for my HSC drama and I, you know, had been bitten by the bug of opera at the age of about 11. And so, you know, I'd had a long-standing love affair. And I thought, yes, let's write something about an opera singer. And, of course, Dame Nellie was, was a very clear idea. So I, that's when I started my obsession with her. And then a few, some years later, actually, um, I was... Um, asked to be the cover of a, a very wonderful Australian, living still Australian opera singer called Emma Matthews, who teaches now in Western Australia. So I, she was playing Nellie Melba in a musical called Melba, a new musical. So a musical was written about Nellie Melba. And I was called in to be the operatic um, understudy, if you like, just in case Emma uh, needed someone to sing for her uh, because, you know, eight shows a week is a lot with opera. Um, it's it's a, a very specific type of singing and singing that often is, yes, opera is not an art form designed for that and the human voice is not really a voice designed to sing that way f- that frequently. Um, I did end up jumping well, it's like in. A, it's like a, um, a vocal marathon. Exactly, right? exactly. It's and the the repertoire that Nelly sang is is not easy either. She she yeah she was uh she was a pretty phenomenal singer. So um I did end up jumping on for two performances. My brief for that was to just learn the operatic arias, and I would be singing them backstage while Emma was walking. But she got so sick that she couldn't even come in. So I had to turn up the afternoon of the performance I was jumping in and learn the staging in about 90 minutes. And I was sitting there with my iPad kind of scribbling everything because I'd learned the arias. I'd read the script a few times just to get a sense of the piece, but I never thought I was going on stage. And so I learned the thing in, like I said, in about 90 minutes. And then I had to sort of, I mean, I had the iPad with me, thank God. So I was, but I was just walking around and I was like, this looks great. We're setting, this is set in, you know, the turn of the century where definitely technology like iPads existed. Um, so that was, that was really fun. Just some sheet music, you'll be fine. Exactly. Exactly. It was, it was, um, that was, uh, a pretty extraordinary moment of my career and my life. And, um, I was very honored to do that. Um, so yes, that was that was the the second time she turned up in my life, and then the third time, Danielle turned up in my life was in two thousand and eighteen. I was incredibly incredibly fortunate to be a scholar with uh, the Melbourne Opera Trust. They support young singers, and I'll talk about this um, as we get to talking into the, the nitty-gritty of Dame Nelly. But she left a bequest. Essentially, she left a large sum of money upon her death. And that uh, has become now a scholarship with the Melbourne Opera Trust and the Melbourne Opera Trust have 
lots of wonderful donors and things and they support about seven artists so six singers typically and a pianist a repetitor uh, so they, yes, they support singers in, in essentially filling the gaps of what a singer, a particular singer needs uh, to launch their career and be have a good business acumen and things. Uh, so yes, Nellie left it and her quote was, so that another Melbourne may rise. So yes, she was a generous woman and I actually had her specific scholarship. So that was a very, a very cool thing. And something for which I'll always be grateful. So, yeah. Yeah, and, and we'll get into it a bit later because I know she did a lot of, like, singing and mentoring. And yes. I feel like she used the phrase, another Melba, um, perhaps more than was necessary. <laughs> <laughs> yes. She was very proud of her achievements, I think. And, in a, you know, she was ve- not at all an archetypal woman she was born in 1861 and she lived until 1931. So that was, you know, a, a time when women were still very much under the thumb of the patriarchy. That's not to say that we're not still, of course, but back then as well, you know, it was very much you, you stay at home with the children and you, you just, you be a housewife as it were, and you hold, host parties and things. But Nellie was not keen on doing any of that at all. Well, since you mentioned, you know, being under the thumb of a man, uh, should we talk about her marriage and the start of her career? Totally, yes. So she was born in Richmond in Melbourne. Her father, David Mitchell, had emigrated to Australia from Scotland to sort of find a better life, which he did. He built a lot of very fam- now very famous buildings in Melbourne. He was quite a celebrated craftsman for that um so he and his wife isabella moved to melbourne and nelly was born in richmond um and she was always encouraged in her musical education by her father but he very much was of the opinion that you know oh no you don't make you don't make a career in in music that's ridiculous you know you go and do something something sensible like get married um (laughs) as a woman except for the get married part i feel like there is still a bit of that for today's opera singers absolutely make a career out of especially opera especially opera and still very i'm sad to say very much in australia i'm i'm very lucky i've always had a lot of support from my parents and my family and now i live in germany where at large, the attitudes, shall we say, to music is is completely different. And they, you know, in Germany, you can you can get a job at an opera house that has insurance and dental care and childcare, and you know they they consider it as just another job, as as if you were working in an office, which is sort of extraordinary for for an Australian, because of course Australians, you know, don't don't have that good a relationship with classical music, which is a shame because Dame Nellie's on our $100 note. She really, she says she put Australia on the map in at the end of the 19th century. And she did. She was the first Kardashian, you know, she was the first... I, I just think if she had Twitter... She, she was would've... better than the Kardashians. She had oh, actual talent. Exactly, exactly. But I just I was thinking before how different it would be if Dame Nelly had social media because I think she would be the most savage, hysterical person <laughs> on Twitter. I really do. I don't think she'd be much for Instagram, but she'd be amazing on Twitter. But anyway, I digress. I would love to see her doing TikTok sea shanties. Oh, Oh, she would she would blow everyone out of the water. She would just be extraordinary. 
<sighs> yes, she'd do it all properly, and she'd tell you the the origins of all of the sea shanties, you know, and then she'd sing probably old Scottish songs and things. No, she was she was amazing. She was uh, always pioneered for excellence and wouldn't accept anything else. Um, so that's something to aspire to. But yes, anyway, she um, her mother died when she was twenty. So and she had several siblings. So Nellie kind of had to be a bit of a mother figure. Uh, and one of her younger uh, sisters also passed away, which wasn't uncommon, of course, in the at the end of the nineteenth century. But that's not to say that that's going not going to uh, change you very much as a person. So she had a very difficult time at that point in her life. But she uh, then, so when she met Charles Armstrong, I think it was a bit of a escape route for her you know get married and they they apparently had a lot of chemistry there's a lot of documentation of them having and they were you know they were both young and sexy so of course you know why not and if she's sick of well and he was he was the son of a baronet exactly exactly so it was the right it was possibly moving up in the world uh they weren't very wealthy but they all they were you know the fact that she had singing lessons and music lessons and things indicates that there was money in the family and that david her father was earning enough um to to support that lifestyle uh but she certainly i mean she became one of the most wealthy women in the world so she certainly had a uh, a desire to move up in life so she married charles armstrong in 1882 but their marriage only lasted a, a year Apparently, he beat her a fair bit. She got I read that he would hold razors to her face, threaten to maim her, and even threw a clock at her head. Yeah, that's... that's. Uh, I mean, I wasn't there. Yeah. I can't verify that, of course, <laughs> but, but that is... But that a is lot a... of the bios just say, like, it was an unhappy marriage and she left and, yeah. like, completely gloss over the fact that, like... He was abusive. Yeah, he was very abusive. And because she's such a powerful woman, I think he probably wanted a wife who would stay at home and be obedient and raise children. And Nellie was none of those things. She was, she, from, you know, she started performing in public at age six. She was always one for the limelight. So I think he, you know, and some people can't cope with that in a partnership which is very unfortunate, but of course, Charles Armstrong had history on his side. So, uh, But they did have a son. They had a son called George, who by all accounts she was absolutely devoted to. Um, and there are some schools of thought that believe that Charles Armstrong followed her to Europe and things. And when the divorce got a bit uh, tricky and in the, in the media and things, he... Uh, kidnapped George and took him away to America, which is why she didn't see him again for a very long time. Um, so yes, but like because I said, I'm no. They didn't expert. actually divorce until I believe 1900. Yes, that's so, right. So, like they were technically married for like 10 years. Or yes, something. they were married and they they separated um, a year after they married. And Nellie said, "Right, okay, that's it. I'm." So she had lived, they were up in Mackay in Queensland at that point, And she said, this is, you know, bugger this. I'm not putting up with this anymore. She went back down to Melbourne, uh, which is, I mean, Queensland to Victoria is already a long trip. But of course, back then it was even longer. And she was doing some work in the sort of budding amateur, pro-amateur opera scene in Melbourne. And she just thought, I, you know, this is not. I want, I want more, essentially. Um, so she took George, got on a ship, 
and took herself to London and she went and sang for people like Arthur Sullivan and didn't really get anywhere. So she went and did lots of auditions and she knew she had raw talent and a lot of aptitude and she worked very hard. Um, and she'd been, like I said, she'd been having lots of singing lessons already in Australia, but it wasn't until she went, she sort of saw the writing on the wall and thought, okay, I need to get further lessons. So she went to Paris and she sang for a woman called Mathilde Marchesi, who is a very, very famous singing teacher, was one of the best at the time. You know, we still use her study books in the modern world for, for her methods for what we call bel canto in the opera world, which is the type of singing we all aspire to do because it's the healthiest form of singing and it's the most beautiful as well. So um, uh, Nelly went and sang for Mathilde Marchese and Marchese famously said, oh, une étoile, I found a star finally, because Marchese could see this incredible, she could hear the voice and she could see what it, whatever it was that made Nelly a charisma machine. And so Nelly studied very, very, very diligently with Marchese for two years and Marchese kind of not just gave her singing lessons but gave her lessons in deportment and told her how to dress and sort of taught her to be that kind of diva personality which certainly in Paris which was at that time it was the main it was um the fin de siècle they call it which means the end of the century and it was this time where just everyone was making art and music think Debussy think Ravel everyone was it was just this explosion of art before in the 30 years or so before world war one broke out so it was it would have been a really extraordinary time to live in Paris at that time and so Nelly was getting all of this amazing advice and energy and things and she uh, so she studied for two years and then she went and auditioned and the Paris Opera offered her a contract of a thousand francs a year which was a pretty decent salary um, and then Brussels offered her a better contract of 3,000 francs a month, which is an enormous salary. But um, the problem was she had signed the contract with Paris and it was, it was going to last for 10 years. And it was, and you know, the, the um, director of the opera tried to take legal action with her because she obviously wanted to be released from that contract and take the far better option in Brussels. Um, And so she was about to embark on a very difficult, um, legal battle about it but then the um the director of the Paris Opera died which meant that she could she was just automatically released from her contract and so she went and what she, yeah he just he just he happened to die um at the no, right I, time I'm not surprised that he died but that seems like a horrible way to run a business if yes. oh the CEO died and now all of our contracts are void I know I know yes well I mean look it worked out well for Nelly so I'm pleased well, for yeah, her that's sake that's what matters exactly and then yeah she had her debut at La Monnaie uh, and she sang Gilda in Rigoletto, which is by Verdi. And that was the 12th of October, 1887. So she was quite young. She was only 26. Well, actually, to be honest, 26 was was more like 36 probably in modern day because, of course, life was very different 150 years ago. 
Uh, but she... And just something to keep in mind, I, I assume that her son was with her this whole time, so she's carting around yes. a, like, three-year-old. Yeah, exactly. She's... <laughs> as, as she's doing all these things. Yes, but I think she saw it as a great way to... I mean, we still do this in Australia. We sort of see Europe as the kind of pinnacle of amazing educational excellence and things, but George was learning French as well as English and he you know he grew up bilingual because he had he did you know Nellie was she could see that it was also a very very good education for him and yes but she did but that's that's exactly right she did have the responsibility of her son as well as her own career but and since you mentioned um you know how Australians view Europeans um sort of the reverse of that I feel like I mean, Nellie loved Australia. She was very much an Australian and an advocate for Australia. And she was, as far as I know, the first Australian to achieve that international recognition as a classical musician. Yes. At a time when most of Europe was just like, oh, yes, that's the land. The colony. You know. Yes. It's the colonies. It's where we send our convicts. And um, I hate the word Aborigines, but that's what they would have said at the time. Like, you know, they, yes. they view it as this place with no civilization, no culture. Exactly. Exactly. And then someone like Nellie comes along and is just yes, su- like super Aussie in a good way. <laughs> yes, exactly. So she was very famous for she took herself, not herself. She took her art form and her work extremely seriously she always strove for excellence. Um, by modern standards, her diction leaves a lot to be desired. But the way she sang was so beautiful. I mean, we only we only have recordings from from records, you know, made in nineteen hundred and seven. So we 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 will never know, unfortunately, what it was like to really hear her. But she never took herself too seriously. She had uh, Australians are known internationally, I think, for having being very easy in different company, be that, you know, upper class, lower class, middle class, whatever. And I think that's, uh, that certainly is the thing that comes through her biographies and all the accounts of her is that she managed to get into the upper echelons of society in Paris because they just loved her. She was charismatic. She was really funny. She was, and yeah, and I mean, she was incredibly good at what she did as well. She was a fantastic singer. She was a very good actress and they also loved having some sherry with her after the performances. So I think that, you know, that and that's going to absolutely, as you say, change how people will view Australians um, at large. You know, she was actually, when she was given her damehood, she was the first performing artist to be given that accolade in the whole world, not just Australian, just in the whole world, the first performing artist who was ever given that so that was very, very special for an Australian. Yeah. My understanding is that her title was Dame Commander of the British Empire. Yes. And that was a result of um, during World War One. she obviously couldn't tour Europe, but she did um, essentially fundraising tours um, around North America to raise money for... Um, like to support the war efforts in world war one exactly and um i believe she raised like potentially as much as a hundred thousand pounds nelly did that with you know her own 
initiative and her own effort and all of the exhaustion that comes with doing tours. So like you were saying, um, you know, you can't just sing eight shows a week operatically. No. It's, it, it would kill you. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a lot. Yes, but it's, um, I mean, because you, you would assume that Nellie was given her damehood for, uh, you know, being an exceptional musician, which she was, but it is, it is actually because of her philanthropy. So, yeah, and I love yeah. Dame Commander. Oh, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Mm-mm-mm. She would have, she would have loved that too, I think. <laughs> Same commander to you. You mentioned um, recordings earlier, and um, I read that she made almost 200 recordings between, like, 1904 and 1926, so, like, one of the earliest recording artists in the world. She's uh, another feather to her cap. She was very happy to explore new technology, which, you know, which we're all very grateful for because recordings of her singing exist um, at all. And she, yeah, she, she was always that, that, uh, we say, you know, muck in, she had that muck in kind of ideology, I think, and was very happy to, to record things. But I, I remember reading in one of her, I think it was her ghost biography, her ghost writer wrote this, so I don't know how true it is, but she did say, oh, you know, it was so irritating. We, we did a take of Caro Norme, which I really enjoyed, but then someone knocked over a chair and we couldn't use it. And I was furious <laughs> and you sort of think, yeah, that's, you know, I mean, it, we ha- perhaps we haven't come that far. You and I spent 40 minutes trying to get this interview off the ground. We're not so. supposed to talk about that. <laughs> yes, exactly. But uh, Yeah, yes. and, and in 1920, I have down that she was also the first artist of international standing to participate in direct radio broadcasts. Exactly, yes. So once once again, she you know, something I really admire about Nellie is that she was always keen to get art to the people, um, in the you know the tours she did in North America are one thing, but she also she did an enormous set of tours in what she called the outback of Australia. She went to tiny little towns and sang for people in little town halls, regardless of how many people turned up. She felt yeah. so passionately about bringing classical music, or you know what perhaps what we call easy listening now. I don't think she necessarily <laughs> did a full operatic concert all the time. Because, uh, yeah. of course, you want to be accessible to an audience. And so singing Cole Porter or something is also going to go down very well. But she was so passionate about bringing music to all Australians. and Yeah, and I think that's the 1909 uh, sentimental tour. Exactly. When she covered more than 16,000 kilometres just yes. in, the, in these remote towns. Yes. Uh, and then in, in 1922, uh, she returned to Australia, because I assume she was in Europe, yes. um, as, as she was wont to do, and yes. performed uh, concerts for the people in Melbourne and Sydney and deliberately ensured that the ticket prices were low. Exactly. And she brought 70,000 people to those concerts. Yeah. Well, she, I mean, she was very, very famous by that point, and I think everyone sort of wanted a slice of Nelly if they could get it. But she... She could also see that that the people the people need art. People always need art. I mean, what have we all been doing in lockdown? We've been seeking comfort in in art in whatever form that comes. And she knew that Australians were, you know, they're all just trying to have a go and make a life. And Australia was not a wealthy country at all at that time. And she and she really knew her audience. She could charge. 
you know, she there are stories of her being seen at parties and things in, you know, in Europe, in Paris or Brussels or, or London or what have you with the highest of society and someone coming up to her and saying, oh, Nelly, you, could, you couldn't just couldn't just give us a little song could you and she would say oh you couldn't just write me a little check could you you know <laughs> which is just one of my favorite stories about her I, it's just because she knew her worth and she wouldn't wouldn't <laughs> would never be undersold so in that society she knew that she could she could charge what she was worth but she's not then gonna make the Australian public pay the same sort of money which I think is is a really I said well a sensible business thing of course but just a kindness to the Australian people who were so proud of of their Dame Nelly so yeah yeah um I I saw a quote from her if you wish to understand me at all you must understand first and foremost that I am an Australian yes and I think that comes through like clearly her love of country and her country people but also you know, bringing that with her when she went around the world. Exactly. You know, she, it wasn't like she tried to hide it or anything because she was worried about how people would see her. It's like, no, this is who I am. Exactly. And and as we've discussed, that's why people loved her because she was authentic. She would. She was never trying to be... I mean, yes, she learned how to walk properly and speak with perhaps better elocution than she had with Marchese, but she never lost her larrikin spirit, which I think, and that's also, she. so she says she had a Scottish work ethic and an Australian spirit. So those two make for a very entertaining party guest, if nothing else. And as an extraordinary energy that she would have brought to her performances as well, which is why people just went so nuts over her as a person, as a performer. Speaking of her performances, um, we haven't really touched on what made her a phenomenal singer. Because, I mean, we can sit here and say she was fantastic. But, like, for example, could you explain what a three-octave voice means? So um, I'll just – I will sing an octave for you because that seems to be the only way I can I can demonstrate <laughs> at the moment. So, um, um – So the two notes at the beginning and the end of that are which is the same, essentially the same note, but um, an octave apart. So it's the same. It's, it sounds harmonically the same in your ear, but she, so she had a three octave range, which is a, a large range. Um, incidentally, actually, I have a three octave range too, um, but it's. Now you're just bragging. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am. You can edit that out if you wish. Um, so. Uh... Oh, no, I love it. Brag <laughs> about yourself. Do it now. <laughs> yes, do it now. Exactly. Know your worth. Um, she, <laughs> yes, she. In opera, you need a minimum, I would say, of sort of two and a half octaves, especially as a soprano. You need to have sort of flashy high notes because that is what thrills people most of the time um and she so because she had a three octave range that meant she could traverse a lot of different repertoires so at that time a lot of singers would only sing a few different things at once but she was typically um at the met for example sometimes an average fortnight for her would be singing mimi and la boheme followed by marguerite in faust then perhaps Juliette in Romeo and Juliette, and then maybe La Traviata and Lucia. And that's, so that's five, six roles in one week. 
just because the opera doesn't want to put on the same opera every night. So people, you know, keep, sure. keep coming back. Yes. Yeah, so she, you know, she worked very, very hard uh, in a sense in that she was always jumping from different roles, which is not really how the opera world works anymore. But because she had this three octave range, it meant she could sing. So Lucia, I suppose, is a really good indication of uh, an enormous range and actually uh so sorry this is going to get quite uh musically technical so i hope i don't i don't ruin anyone's life by talking like this but she there is a cadenza at the end of the very famous mad scene in lucia de l'amour and dame nelly actually wrote that it's a very famous one with flute and voice so she added that in donizetti did not write that she thought actually i think i'm gonna make this my like that's, own. that is the most famous like that's probably yes. the i would argue the best soprano scene in opera yeah it is the most famous and uh you so, know so just just to give some clarity for the folks who don't know opera um the lucia mad scene is basically um this young woman has been separated from the man she loves and forced to marry this other guy who I don't think is actually that bad. It's just she doesn't want to be married to him. Yes. And so on the wedding night, they go up to the bedroom and uh, you hear, for example, a piercing scream or something because all the party guests are still downstairs. And so then Lucia comes out in a bloody nightgown holding a knife, having clearly just stabbed her new husband, which yes. poor guy, I don't think he deserved that. It wasn't his fault. It was her brother. But that's not yes. the point. <laughs> so she's like in this trance day sort of situation where she's singing to her love, who she thinks is dead because her brother's a dick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's opera. Go with me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so she's... T- no, because I love this scene. It's amazing. And so she's just like sort of floating through this horrified crowd in her bloody nightgown with her bloody knife. You know what she just did with it. Mm. And she's just sort of gently singing to the man yes. she loves about how they'll be together, I think. Yes. And it is it is theatrically, I would argue, the best scene it in is, opera. It's incredibly compelling. <laughs> It, it really, and it's, and it's extraordinary writing from Donizetti as well. But Melba, I guess, thought, no, nah, I want to show off more. I can, <laughs> I can sing this more beautifully than anyone else, so I'm going to write myself a few extra bits. And now, you know, that uh, Joan Sutherland, who's one of our other incredibly famous Australian operatic exports, who passed away in the 1990s, may she rest in peace, she was that was her famous role lucia was her famous role and she added a little bit to nelly's cadenza and made it her own the joan sutherland cadenza but nelly was the one who started doing that um so yes she's uh sorry i've I've forgotten what we were talking about so we were talking about like from i guess from a technical standpoint I, i read something about Nature had given her an almost perfect larynx and vocal cords, and I don't even know what that means. Like, is that just (laughs) someone waxing poetic? I mean, that is very, very poetic, um, and I don't think that that's true. I mean, it's like when people say, oh, you know, opera singers are so talented, and I think, no, we're not talented. We just work incredibly hard. You know, you don't say a gymnast is talented. They're out there stretching and learning how to jump and land without breaking their ankles for hours and hours every day, and opera singers in particular are doing exactly the same thing. So, like I said, Scottish work ethic, Nelly just worked incredibly hard. She did have an aptitude, and of course, you can't 
work on an operatic voice without having an aptitude for it, it's very hard to find someone who would perhaps call themselves tone deaf and then train them to be an operatic star. I think that's probably a pipe dream, but she, yes. So she, and that's right. We were talking about her enormous range and then we got, went on a wonderful little tangent about Lucia de Lammermoor and she, so yes, that was where she showed her extensive range and big high notes and things, but she could also sing what we call heavier repertoire like Wagner, she sang Elsa in Lohengrin and she sang Elizabeth in Tannhäuser. She did try Brunhilde, which is one of the hardest roles in the whole repertoire for soprano, but she um, only sang one or two performances of that and she said, no, um, it's it's an amazing story. Actually, one of the, the director came backstage and she knew she'd done a bad job. So this is one of the great things is often singers think, oh, no, it was fine, it doesn't matter, but Nelly always knew when she had done a poor job and when she'd done an amazing job. Mostly she did an amazing job, but she did a poor job of Brunhilde and she said, just tell the critics immediately, I'm never going to sing it again. I know I'm not going to do it again. She really knew her what, what she was good at, um, which is pretty amazing because a lot of people get caught up in fame and fortune and stardom and things. But Nelly, for her, it was always about the music, always about the work and always about representing herself properly. Um, and she did. She, had an, she did have an amazing voice. So, yeah, she was known for having a very silvery, beautiful tone. And um, Puccini, who's a very famous opera composer who wrote um, one of the most beloved operas in the world now, which is La Boheme, he, uh, Nellie Melba had in her collection of scores a signed copy by Puccini of La Boheme because he loved the way that she sang Mimi, for example. He always said to her, oh, you know, you don't sing... You you sing Puccini, you don't sing Melba Puccini. So, and he loved that Nellie Melba actually sang what he wrote. So, well, I think I read that she was known for that, not just with Puccini, um, but she she was known for sticking to what the except in the case of Lucia, apparently. Of course, yes, but that that's a different kettle of fish because in the bel canto tradition with Donizetti, Rossini, that was encouraged and allowed and often musicians, uh, singers would uh, make up a cadenza on the night if they felt something different and it was kind of a bit of a, you know, it was almost what jazz is now. It was like, there's a lot of Yes, it was improv. <laughs> it's an extraordinary to think of now because we think of classical music as this very um yeah stiff and strict and um you know you only do rigid rigid yes you know which it's not it's it's really not it's anything but that it's just it's the most extraordinary alive electric thing but yes so um but she was very much about um presenting the music as the composer intended and so as you were saying you know some of the composers you could freestyle a bit but yes you know, she she was very much about, I guess, being the conduit. Yes. Um, so that the the composer's intentions were what the audience experienced. Exactly. Yes. And you mentioned uh, La Boheme, and not only did she do, I'm sure, a fabulous Mimi, um, but she was also an advocate for La Boheme because the yes. the Covent Garden management were like sneering at this new and plebeian opera. Exactly, because so <laughs> Bohème was, was sort of a... Usually opera had typically been stories, up until this point had been stories about kings and queens and royalty and, and enormous wars and, you know, and Shakespearean plays made into opera and things. It was and then, epic. 
Yeah, exactly. Which, I mean, which it is anyway. But then Puccini just wrote this story about some sort of young, sexy artists living in an attic just trying to make their way in the world. He just wrote what his life was, essentially. And everyone thought, this is this is so boring. I mean, what, you know, we know people are dying of consumption. We don't want reminders of that, you know. But, of course, Nelly could see that this was a really special piece of music and she did exactly as you say she really really hammered it in and said you know if you want me to sing it's bohem and of course Covent Garden was sort of you know they were like keep the prima donna happy keep her happy and the people will come and they came to hear her and she she really launched that opera and it's now it's I mean Opera Australia puts it on every year like every year every year because people come and it's a it's a beautiful work it's an extraordinary piece of music. It's perfect. It also makes sense because we were talking earlier about, you know, she wanted it to be music for the people. Exactly. And Bohem is very much the people. It's, you yeah. know, the, the folks living in the garret. Yeah. Um, it's the, the everyday people. If you're everyday people are artists, which his were. Yes, um, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I just find it hilarious that, you know, they're like, oh, not this. And then <laughs> and now it's it's the most done opera like it's it's got to be in at least the top 10 if not the top five most performed operas in the yes world. Yeah. yeah but it's but i mean that that takes me to a, a point about which i'm very passionate which is not necessarily melba but about opera and it's it's timeless it's it's it, people consider it this inaccessible thing but it's not it's just it's just stories of people living their lives and trying to live their lives the best they can and dealing with the pressures of life and how that changes them or, you know, how love changes them and death changes them. And yeah. But see, Nelly, to take it back to Nelly, she knew that. That's why she wanted to take it to the Australian people in, you know, Broken Hill, which for anyone not in Australia is, is you know, probably called Broken Hill because you'll be broken by the time you've travelled to get there. So because it's so close to the centre like of the country. you're not wrong, but aww. Yeah. <laughs> yes, aww. no, we love you, Broken Hill. We love you. Um, but yes, to take it, what made her a great singer, I think, is not just what she brought to the art form as a vocalist and with her instrument, but also her business acumen. She really changed what I touched on earlier about her saying, well, you can write me a check if you want me to sing, you know, at this party. She, but also the, you know, the, the 200 recordings that she did, yeah, the you know, radio broadcasts, um, like she was very savvy and she also, from what I understand, she very tightly managed all of the aspects of what we would today call her brand. Exactly. Um, like she said, the first rule in opera is the first rule in life. See to everything yourself, which exactly. as a control enthusiast <laughs> appeals to me. Yeah, she's, um, <laughs> she, she was phenomenal in, in the, every detail, every single detail. There's... Um, as part of being a scholar with the Melbourne Opera Trust, we, uh, in the first sort of uh, block, they called it, so, you know, you'd go to Melbourne and do rehearsals for a week and things, we did something called a Melbourne Pilgrimage, where we got to go and visit her house uh, and her, uh, her gravesite, actually. I cried. It was, it was that cool for me. I just thought it was so amazing. Um, and she, but we actually got to see some of her clothes and some of her uh, luggage and things and everything, you know, she had luggage from Louis Vuitton and all of her clothes were designed by French designers and that's what she wore on stage as well. I mean, she didn't wear her clothes on stage, but her costumes were designed by French designers, silk lining, real fur, 
properly made, beautiful works of art, essentially, bodices and everything. And she and that was her seeing to things herself as well. She demanded this this level. And but that of course to use branding, that's how she was branding herself as well as the diva, the the the, the couture and all of those you know, that that wealth yeah. and well, there was another quote um, where she said, if I'd been a housemaid, I'd have been the best in Australia. I couldn't help it. It's got to be perfection for me. Exactly. Yes. that I I had not read that quote. And I think that that sounds like her to a T because she was very particular. <laughs> I, I think she, in one of the early, uh, early on in her career, she actually just packed up some of the dresses that had been made for her singing Marguerite, I believe, in Faust. And she said, no, no, these are mine now. They were made for me. You know, and so she, I think, because she, she could, she could tell a beautifully made garment when she came across one, and yeah, and actually her house. And she knew that she could get away with taking it. exactly because she was La Melba, um, but she yes, her house is um, it's full of beautiful trinkets and artwork, and she definitely uh, was. You could see that she was fastidious for style and aesthetic, and things. You know, none none of that stuff escaped her notice, and and similarly in her singing, she was scathing of um, <laughs> other sopranos who sang the same repertoire as her, because in her mind, no one could sing it as well as she could. Um, I mean, if you sang different repertoire, she would support you, she'd love you, you know, she'd help you out. But if you were the same sort, mm-mm. and the, the she, I remember reading in one of her biographies, she wrote about another soprano who was singing. Um, I think it was Juliette and Romeo and Juliette. And she said, oh, you know, and then she missed that note in this cadenza, but the conductor hit it really well by flicking the upbeat slightly earlier than he would have. And you sort of think, okay, Nellie, and you never had an off night, did you? You were always perfect. You so know? she would have been Twitter feuding. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes, like I said, she would have been savage. Savage. But, but like you said, as long as you weren't, I believe, a lyric soprano, there are sopranos who have just a different... Um, color to their voice. Yes. Um, so they wouldn't be lyric sopranos. They would be a different kind of soprano. And so as long as you weren't a lyric soprano, um, Nellie was pretty supportive. She was extremely supportive. She brought up a lot, especially of emerging Australian talent when she was alive and, and, <laughs> and in her death. You know, I'm, I'm a direct recipient of her her bequest actually so thank you dan nelly <laughs> may you rest in peace um she... well, see, now that she's dead the lyric sopranos can be also exactly yes as, as, well. a, as a lyric soprano myself it's oh, born in the rat century thank goodness for that um but she yes she was incredibly supportive so in the tours that she was doing in australia and the concert tours she was doing she always brought up uh, not just other singers, but but um, she worked with a violinist for a long time and a flautist as well, and she just really encouraged Australian musicians and sort of helped to push them over to Europe so they could get their European education, uh, which incidentally... So is... she started this great migration that yeah. we're seeing now where yeah. young Australian... Because it's not just you. I know a lot of young Australian opera singers who go to yeah. particularly Germany but also elsewhere yes. in Europe to sort of get their careers going. Exactly. Germany's the place to be at the moment. And of course, in Nelly's time, Paris was where you went because that was like the, the buzzing core uh, of everything. And, you know, she, she was right. You do, and you still do, there's a great, uh, you can get a very good education in Australia, but you still need, you must go overseas to learn languages. You know, I, I have dear friends here who... Um, 
growing up as as a german for example but they can go to italy for a summer for three months very easily very cheaply and just learn to speak italian at the age of 14 because it's just across the alps you know but you can't really do that in australia unless you're extremely wealthy and extremely lucky and so yes we still as australians need to to make that pilgrimage and of course in nelly's time you sat on a ship for six weeks or something whereas you know the 24 hour flight time is very hard of course but it's it's nothing like that but yeah you really did you were away for a long time and you but you you have to yes you learned all of those things and because it's an art form that was born in italy it was born in europe that's yeah that's just part of the education still but she definitely started a trend and that's what then may meant so many more australian really really top tier musicians could emerge because they were able to access that education from that path that she you know carved herself essentially so i think that's everything i wanted to cover unless there was anything else you wanted to tell us about the dame commander um the dame commander an amazing woman well actually okay so one of my favorite things about her the larrikin spirit so on her gravestone she has a quote from uh bohem which is adio senza rancor which is what mimi sings in her second aria which comes in act three when she and rodolfo are kind of breaking up because she's they've realized she's dying and he's too poor to kind of look after her but adio senza rancor means goodbye without any bitterness um and i always just thought that was her last word being like it's okay guys like no hard feelings to those of you who thought I'd never make it. And I did. So whatever. <laughs> so I always figure she's, she's one of the, the, one of the original deeply sassy women. Cause that's, that's essentially a, a Twitter, just a beautiful little Twitter moment, isn't it? Adios senza rancor. So I do, I do think she's left an incredible legacy, but I love that she never took her herself too seriously. I think that's that's really really special, which is why she was so loved because people felt they could actually get to know her. And my other favorite quote that she said is, "In my own path, great obstacles were placed, but I do not think anything in this world could have hindered me from becoming a singer," which is something I take through my own life and Yes, I admire very much from her. You know, she escaped an abusive marriage and took her son overseas and just made her life work and became a superstar. That's, it's it's kind of a Cinderella story, but make no mistake, Nellie did that by herself. She, she did that. She did the work. So, yes. Damn commander indeed. <laughs> And I hope everyone who's listening will join me next time uh, for the next Infinite Women podcast. Thanks so much.